Many years ago, I uh, officiated at the wedding of a couple of very dear friends of mine. They chose to use very traditional vows. Now, we modified some of the wording of those vows, like the part that says, Thereto I plight thee my troth, which uh, always sounded to me like it had something to do with uh, the shared feeding of livestock under harsh circumstances. Uh, when I put that, when I, when I read that phrase, Thereto I plight thee my troth into my speech-to-text app, it translated it as, Thereto I polite thee my troth. Go figure. But the couple stuck to their guns when it came to the portion of the woman's vow where the woman vowed to her husband to love, honor, and obey. Right after the wedding, as we were headed out of the chapel to the reception, a 60-ish woman came up to me. And in essence, she said to me, Are you crazy? She was absolutely appalled that I would endorse the wording of that vow that the woman would say to her husband that she committed to obey him. In fact, she was appalled that I would endorse any wording that implied any form of submission of the woman to the man. As politely as I could, I told her that the couple had settled on those vows and that I fully endorsed them because they were based on what God had to say on the matter in his word. She asked me when I planned to join the 20th century. And then apparently she realized I wasn't going to join the 20th century and she went elsewhere to talk to somebody else. That was about 20 years ago. Here we are in the 21st century. And her perspective on the matter is no longer unusual at all. In fact, I'd have to say it's the cultural consensus and unfortunately, it is more and more true that it is the consensus within the professing church of Jesus Christ. If you want to get on the wrong side of the political and cultural correctness police, you don't even have to use your own words. Just quote a passage like 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 in any public forum, or for that matter, in most churches, and you're going to get people really upset. That passage says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Wow. Or how about 1 Corinthians 14? It starts in verse 34 by saying, Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. To the world's way of thinking and increasingly to the sensibilities of many who call themselves Christians, those kinds of statements are absolutely intolerable, even though they come from the Bible itself. Our purpose this morning is to go back to the very beginning, to God's own account of his creation of mankind, because it is there that we find the foundation of everything that the Bible says about God's assignments for men and women. 
both in the context of marriage and in the context of his covenant community. We're going to see over the next couple of weeks that there are two foundational reasons that so much of the Bible's instruction to the woman focuses on submission to and respect toward the man and why so much of the Bible's instruction to the man focuses on leading with sacrificial love rather than with strong-armed insistence on his own way. In a nutshell, those two reasons or bases that we're going to see for all that God says about the relationship between men and women are these. First, God's original, sacred, perfect design with regard to male and female. And secondly, the resistance of sinful men and women to that perfect design. We're going to look at that first basis today and the second one next week. Let's start with uh, with God's design. His original, perfect, sacred intention for all that he requires of men as men and of women as women. His intention as we find it before there was ever sin in mankind. There are five aspects, and you'll find them kind of charted out on this little outline. There are five aspects to that design that we're going to examine based on the text of Genesis 1 and 2. Plurality, equality, diversity, authority, and submission. Now, don't get worried about what I'm going to, you know, what those terms mean. We'll, we'll see as we proceed. But I'm going to show you my cards right up front. The most important point that we'll see from the first two chapters of Genesis this morning is that each of those five aspects of God's original design for male and female derives from the nature of God himself. Plurality, equality, diversity, authority, and submission. And because all of those aspects of God's design, of His divine assignment for male and female, derive from the nature of God Himself, there is nothing, not one thing about any of them that is anything but good when they play out according to God's intention. They're not wrong. They're not neutral. They're holy and righteous and perfect. So whatever it is that causes us to resist them or to abuse them or to misinterpret them, is pure error, falsehood. So what does the creation account, the inspired record of how God set things up before sin entered the world, tell us about his design for men and women? Well, first it tells us there is a plurality in the image bearers. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God moves very explicitly in that verse from singular to plural. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The word man in this verse, the Hebrew Adam, Adam speaks of man in the generic sense, mankind. Man, as the bearer of God's image, is then immediately explained as male and female. The wording and repetition in this foundational verse declares very clearly that this new creation that God calls man 
consists of two kinds of beings, not just one, male and female. Two categories of mankind. And this is affirmed very directly again in Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2, which says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then immediately it says he created them, male and female, singular to plural. And he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. All three instances of the word here, Adam and then man and then man again, they're all the same Hebrew word, Adam. There is plurality in this creation called man whom God appointed to be his image bearer. Now, that all sounds very elementary at this point, but stick with me. There is plurality, and at the highest level of man's role and assignment, there is equality. There is zero distinction in Genesis 1 when it comes to male and female as image bearers. Look at verses 26 through 28. Chapter 1, Genesis 26. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. The image and likeness of God is that which dramatically sets us as human beings apart from all the rest of his creation. And what it means for us to be image bearers is that we manifest to all the rest of creation who God is and what He is like because He has made us like Himself in many critical respects. Interestingly, angels are not said to be created in the image of God. Men and women are. There is plurality and there is equality. There is equality in our role as image bearers and there is equality in our assignment as fellow agents of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28 again. Verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then he says this, Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 27 again repeats that he created man in his own image, male and female. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. By the way, I believe it was necessary, the commission to populate and fill the earth was necessary so that mankind would have a presence in all the earth to have the dominion over all the earth that God had assigned to him. So who is this creature that acts as the agent of God to rule over his creation? To multiply, to fill the earth so that his dominion will be realized in all parts of the earth. This creature is man and this creature is male and female. Men and women were created with a shared role as the image bearers of God and with a shared assignment as the agents of God in exercising dominion over all that he had created. In both of these critical respects, men men and women are equals 
in God's design. But in the outworking of this big picture role and assignment, God then assigns secondary roles and tasks that are very different for men than they are for women. Roles and tasks that are not equal. Now we're already in very controversial territory here from the world's point of view, but there is actually no controversy at all in the mind of God. In uh, his excellent book, Men and Women Equal Yet Different, Alex Strauch quotes from a few of the most outspoken modern-day Bible scholars who assert that before the fall, that is, before the first sin, Adam and Eve were equal in the eyes of God in every sense. They assert that there was absolutely no difference in authority and subordination of role or assignment until sin entered the world. And according to that line of reasoning, because all distinctions distinctions of authority and submission between men and women were the result of sin, they really have no real legitimacy and we don't have to pay any attention to them. In fact, these Evangelical feminists, as Strzok calls them, declare that such distinctions are inherently bad, not good. Strzok quotes one spokesperson for this position, a woman named Rebecca Greathouse, as follows, quote, The Genesis creation account cannot be justifiably used to demonstrate the existence of male authority and female subordination before the fall. Gender hierarchy cannot be extracted from the Genesis text unless it is first smuggled into the text. But is that an accurate assessment of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2? Let's take a closer look. In Genesis 2, God created the man first and then the woman. In in verses 19 and 20 of that chapter, God tasked the man with naming the animals before the woman was yet created. And one chapter earlier in Genesis 1, look at Genesis 1 verse 5 real quick, God did some naming himself. Genesis 1 5, God called the light day, in the darkness he called night. Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. Verse 10, God called the dry land Eretz, earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Guys, throughout the Bible, naming is a demonstration of authority. The one doing the naming manifests his authority over the one who is named. God named the man using the same name that he gave to mankind. Adam. God named the man, but the man named the woman. Genesis 2, verses 20 to 23, and chapter 3, verse 20, Adam gave the name woman to the woman, and Adam gave the name Eve to his wife as her proper name. And again, throughout the Bible, look at it. Trace it throughout the Bible. Look at what happens when kings give names to people. It is a rite 
given to those in authority that proves their authority over those who are named. Chapter 2, verse 18, God created the woman for the man. It's an interesting verse because it kind of covers both sides of this issue, equality and submission. It says, Then the Lord God, chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now I want to make sure I point out that the word helper does not imply subordination or submission. If it did, we'd have a real problem because in Psalm 30, verse, uh, let's see, Psalm 30, verse 10, and in Psalm 54, verse 4, David calls God his helper. And it's the exact same word that's used here. The word suitable also does not inherently imply submission or subordination. Suitable for, in essence, means of the same kind as, corresponding to. That's, they had to both be of the same kind in order to be co-bearers of the image of God. But here's, here's the primary way that we know that the woman was created for the man, and it's because, as Alex Strauch points out, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clears up the question in 1 Corinthians eleven nine 9 when he says, For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. It was not good for the man to be alone. God created the woman for the man, and God created the woman from the man. Genesis 2, verses 20 to 23. God put Adam to sleep, and he took a rib from his side, and he formed the woman from Adam's Adam's rib. And when Adam got to meet that woman, he said, This is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That was, again, a happy day for Adam. I have to conclude that the only way to get around the subordination of woman to man in God's original design is to smuggle it out of the text of Genesis. And the role of man as primary and of woman as subordinate persists after the fall in God's design. All of the Old Testament prophets through whom the Scriptures were revealed were men. All of the rulers of Israel and Judah except one were men. The only exception was Athaliah, and she was a mess. She usurped the throne through the most horrible of treacheries. She resolved to kill all of her son's sons after her son died to eliminate all competition for the throne of Judah And one son of her son, named Joash, was protected by someone else, hidden away. He's the only one that survived. Athaliah reigned for six years. Joash, who was a godly king, reigned for 40 years. That's in 2 Kings 11 and 12. All of the Levitical priests were men. All of the 12 apostles Jesus chose were men. And as we'll see a bit later in this series of messages, leadership within the church, the body of Christ, is explicitly assigned in the New Testament to men. The modern and popular notion that all of these aspects of male authority and female submission found in the Bible played out this way out of cultural necessity to accommodate the male-centered nature 
of the ancient Near East and later of the Roman Empire is absolute hogwash. The pagan religions of the ancient Near East and of Rome regularly included the worship of goddesses. You ever heard of Ashtaroth? And the activity of priestesses in their systems of worship. And of course, it could hardly be argued that Jesus constrained himself to say and do things that were politically and culturally correct. Just read Matthew 23 and see if you can can hold that idea. The same applies to the apostles. This was the upside-down kingdom that Jesus told us about and revealed to us in himself. And we'll also see as we proceed through these next few messages that many, uh, that, that all of the abuses, the many abuses of women that are so pervasive in both ancient and modern culture have no basis whatsoever in God's design. None. What is it about the God-ordained distinctions that we find in the Bible regarding men and women that is so offensive to the world's way of thinking? and to much of the thinking that's found in the modern church. Well, the problem is not God's design. The problem is our sin. Our sin leads us to believe that any difference in authority necessarily implies unequal worth or value. In other words, authority always implies superiority. And on the other side of that same coin, our sin leads us to believe that submission always implies inferiority, lesser value or worth. That grievously flawed assertion drives the world and many professing Christians to despise every notion that a man could ever have legitimate authority over a woman or that a woman could ever legitimately be required to submit to a man. So how do we know that the God-given distinctions between male and female do not imply unequal value or worth in his eyes. We know it by looking at the God in whose image men and women were created. Equal yet different didn't start with us. It started with God. The wonderful reality concerning God's design for men and women and His created order is that in every aspect that we've just been considering, that design is patterned after God's own nature. It's patterned after how things have always worked in the eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Plurality, equality, diversity, authority, and submission have all existed within the Trinity from eternity past. God engineered these characteristics into the relationship between man and woman, I believe, because they are true of Him and we are the bearers of His image. That doesn't mean that there is a Trinity in humanity. It means there these are aspects of the way the Godhead works that He has placed into mankind. We've been talking... Uh, a lot about the image bearers. Let's talk about the image source, God himself. Go back again to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. In verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
three times in that very brief statement, God applies to himself the plural. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what is it about God himself that should cause us to expect that his image would be expressed in two categories of humans instead of one? And, this is all ties together, that there would be the necessity of cooperation and interdependence between those two kinds of people. Indeed, the necessity of a distinction in authority and submission between those two kinds of people. What is it about God that would make that fitting? Look carefully again at the wording in Genesis 1.26 and then at the wording in Genesis 1.27. Three times, the one and only true God refers to himself in the plural. And by the way, the scholars who say these are plurals of majesty, the royal we, if you will, are, again, uttering nonsense. The wording in this, pro, in this foundational declaration of God is very intentional and it is very strategic on God's part. One true God refers to himself as us. And in the very next verse, he refers to his image bearer as singular and then plural. Now, I'm not saying uh, that, there, that, that God is without gender. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying God is both male and female. Uh, throughout Scripture, God is he, not she. And in John 14, 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father, and Jesus was most certainly male. What I'm saying is simply this. Plurality in the image bearer is fitting in light of plurality in the image source. God is three persons in one essence. It is fitting that in the pinnacle of God's creation, whom he calls man, whom he appointed to act on his behalf, to rule over his creation, there should be diversity. There should be plurality, diversity, authority, submission, and equality. The idea is that God created two kinds so that in their equality as the image bearers and agents of God, they might manifest things that were true about God himself. Equal yet different applies to us, I believe, because it applies to God, the one in whom, in whose image we were created. At the very least, I believe we must acknowledge that the pattern of equality of honor and value, along with the distinction in authority and submission is fitting for the image bearers because it is found in God. Now, I'm going to recommend that you read a book, another book. I don't have a copy this morning. It's a book that uh, Ron Manis handed to me when I was going to teach a series on the Trinity several years ago. It's called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. I highly recommend that book. It's written by Fred Sanders. And it, uh, it pretty much rocked my world when it came to my understanding of the Trinity, especially when it came to my understanding of the life-giving and life-changing work of the Holy Spirit on a continual basis in, in the life of every believer. 
There's so much that we can say about the Trinity and how the Trinity works as recorded in Scripture. I'm just going to touch the very surface of the biblical weight of evidence concerning the things that are true of the Trinity that in some fashion pass down to the image bearers. We've already talked about plurality. Let's look at equality. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each perfect in their divinity and are of one essence. They're co-equal. Each of the three persons of the Trinity is called God, and each is called by the covenant name of God that was revealed to Moses by God in Exodus chapter 3. That name is Yahweh, which means I am. Each of the three persons of the Trinity existed in eternity past. Each was present and active in God's work of creation. Each of the three persons of the Trinity is referred to in Scripture as perfectly holy. Each is presented as the source of life. Each demonstrates omnipotence, absolute power over God's creation. That's very much the tip of the iceberg. In all respects having to do with essence, with character, with honor, with worthiness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal. Plurality, equality, Here's where it gets especially significant with regard to the relationship between men and women and God's design, and that is diversity, authority, and submission, and those all go together in the image source, God himself. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have different roles. That's diversity. And those different roles involve distinctions in authority and submission between the three persons of the Trinity, The greatest demonstration, and again, this is a whole separate set of messages, (laughs) but the greatest demonstration of these three facets of God's nature, diversity, authority, and submission, is found in the direct claims that Jesus made about his own relationship with the Father and about his submission to the Father. Here's a man, a perfect man, who had every reason and every right to speak on his own authority and to act on his own authority. Because he's not only perfect man, he's perfect God. And yet he lived 33 years on this earth and never spoke a single word or carried out a single action on his own initiative or on his own behalf. Everything he said and did was at his father's bidding. You think I'm overstating that? Let's look at what he had to say. John chapter 5 verse 19 Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. John 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 8. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, and He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John chapter 12, verses 48 to 50. 
He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Beloved, if you do not see submission of the Son to the Father in those passages, then in the words of Inigo Montoya, I do not think that word means what you think it means. You can call it submission, you can call it subordination, you can call it self-denial, but if you water it down to be less than any of those things, you are misrepresenting Jesus himself. I cannot imagine what words Jesus could have used to drive home this point more clearly than he did. I cannot imagine. His authority, the authority of the very Son of God, proceeds from his Father's authority. The Son speaks without exception at his Father's initiative, never at his own. He acts without exception on his Father's behalf, never on his own. And if we set aside this powerful truth, we diminish the power of the cross and we negate the calling of the cross. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Beloved, if Jesus did not deny himself to submit to his Father, if he did not forfeit his life to obey his Father, then that most foundational calling of Jesus Christ to every child of God is meaningless. When Jesus willingly went to the cross, it was the greatest act of submission, of subordination, of self-denial that has ever been done or ever will be done. And by the way, I firmly believe that the submission of the Son to the Father has always been the case. Uh, There's an outstanding and very concise defense of that position in an article by Wayne Grudem. You can go to waynegrudem.com and download it real quickly in PDF. It's called Biblical Evidence for the Eternal Submission of the Son to the Father, and it covers the bases exceedingly well. I'll be more than happy to, to you know, help you find that article or even give you a printed copy. And this perfect submission within the Godhead extends to the third person of the Trinity as well. The Holy Spirit, who never glorifies Himself and whoever lives to glorify both the Father and the Son... John 16, verses 13 to 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room just before he was betrayed into the hands of his accusers. And he said, I have many more things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That's two levels of subordination. Diversity of role and assignment, distinctions in authority and submission, 
These things didn't start with people. They have always existed within the Godhead. And God has passed them down to us as image bearers. Now, some of you will say, well, he could have said all that in five minutes. Now, I think it requires a little development from God's Word because it is exceedingly, exceedingly foundational and important. Why does all this matter? How is this relevant to our understanding of God's design for us as men and women? It matters because it proves on the authority of God's Word and on the basis of God's very nature that the world, and unfortunately many in the modern church, are 100% wrong when they declare that submission equals inferiority and that authority equals superiority. And it is precisely because of those two grievous errors those two lies from the pit that so many have trashed God's perfect design for the relationship between men and women in marriage and in the body of Christ. And this goes way beyond God's intentions for us as male and female. It impacts everything we know about authority and submission in the design of God. It impacts the attitude we have toward governing authorities. God says they all exist by His doing. It affects our work ethic as those whose submission to earthly bosses is to be an act of submission to our real boss. Understanding how these things work in the Godhead radically redefines for us, or rather defines for us in the first place, how He intends for them to work in our relationships with others. We are called to be imitators of God. My assistant, uh, Belen, said something when we were talking about this issue this week that really got my attention. And I've been thinking about it ever since. <laughs> Where are you? There you are. She said, ask any mother who's nursing a baby who's submitting to whom. Sure, the baby's 100% dependent on the mother, so there's an element of submission there. But which one is setting aside her own needs and interests for the sake of the other? Which one's schedule is being determined by the other. Does that make the mother inferior to her baby? Does it make the mother of less worth or honor in the eyes of God? No, in fact, any husband who has a couple of brain cells to knock together and who gets a chance to behold that amazing interaction between mother and child sees nothing but beauty and honor in the mother and in the child. In the summer of 1985, I was doing a pastoral internship at an evangelical free church in San Antonio called Wayside Chapel. Some of you know know of it. At that church, the pastor got to express his opinion in the elders' meetings, but he didn't have a vote in the elders' decisions. During the few months that I got to sit in on elders' meetings at that church, the chairman of the elder board at that time was a very godly man who worked as a shop foreman at a tire store in San Antonio. As the chairman of that group, he set the agendas, he kept the meetings on point, he handled a lot of other administrative tasks for the elders. He was very gifted at administration. When it came to decisions rendered by that board of elders that affected the whole church, he had one vote that carried the same weight as that of any of the other elders. But in many of the specifics of operational management of the elders' meetings 
and of their decision-making process, the other elders regularly followed his lead. And one of those other elders owned the tire store at which that man worked as shop foreman. That was just a great picture to me of how authority and submission works by God's design, a design that's patterned after his own nature. I get to see that same pattern played out every time I go to an elders meeting with these guys. There are different strengths. We find ourselves submitting in different, in different manners to one another. But God has given us honor based on Christ in us. And in that regard, we're co-equals. Now let me be clear. When it comes to our submission to God's authority, there is an infinite distinction of value and worth between God and us. But when it comes to authority and submission among humans by God's design, whether it be in the context in the church, in the context of marriage, or in any other context in which God requires it, it never in the eyes of God means that the one in authority is of greater value than the one in submission. And what is true in the eyes of God must be true in our eyes as well. Submission is not a four-letter word. And when it is in keeping with God's design, submission is a virtue, not a vice. It is an outworking of true godliness that should be treasured by God's people, not despised. In Revelation 5, the apostle John, at the end of his life, got a glimpse into heaven itself. And he saw countless angelic beings calling out with a loud voice. And they were talking about the one who has displayed the greatest humility, the greatest submission, the greatest self-denial in the history of the world. And they declared worthy. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Beloved, the one who has been given the name which is above every other name, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is the same one who submitted to the will of his Father without exception in every word that he spoke and in everything that he did. The one who humbled himself further than any other man has been humbled and who gave himself up for us. He proved to all creation that when submission to another is ordained by God, the one most worthy of honor is the one most willing to submit. Loving Father, I pray as we just, we've kind of just begun to look into this issue this morning, but I pray, Lord, that these things that are so foundational to our understanding will, will be driven home by your Spirit. This, this whole issue, Lord, is so divisive and it is so concerning to us to see how it is impacting the church and how it is impacting so many marriages. Men abuse authority. Women refuse to submit. 
and things fall apart because we have it so very wrong. And it impacts the church. It impacts the way men and women both set aside and disregard your clear instruction in the New Testament. Lord, I pray that you will get our attention and not let us turn our eyes aside from what you declare to be true until we truly, humbly submit to it. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.